The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. If you have read anything on the internet or opened up an article or have just clicked on anything recently, you've probably heard of the term ransomware. It seems to be the digital hot topic of 2023 among many digital hot topics. Today, I'm really pleased to be chatting with Curtis Minder. Curtis is the CEO and co-founder of GroupSense. GroupSense delivers fully managed cyber intelligence and reconnaissance services, has a lot of really innovative work that they're doing in this space from ransomware negotiation to digital risk protection monitoring, and a lot of these cyber hot topics that we kind of talk about across the defense and government space. Obviously, we're talking a ton about CMMC, compliance, issues around cyber vulnerabilities across not just the defense industrial space or federal government, but pretty much anybody that ever wants to do business with the federal government. So I don't know a ton. Actually, I got to see you, Curtis, on a panel talking about this. And so that was what called you to mind to say, hey, is this as big of a trend as we're seeing? Um, kind of what are we seeing from the digital vulnerability space? So on that note, I'm just really pleased that you took the time to chat with me. We're willing to be on the show today. Thank you so much. Oh, well, well, thank you so much for having me. Talk to that. So ransomware, is it the hot buzzword topic of 2023? When we're thinking about cyber vulnerabilities, how important is it to consider this topic of ransomware? And how does it maybe tie into what we're talking about more broadly with CMMC, digital vulnerabilities, compliance issues? Well, yeah, unfortunately, it is still a thing. It's been going on. Actually, there's been versions of this kind of cyber attack going back to the 80s, believe it or not, where it's really picked up speed in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years is you know, the advent of the dark web, where the threat actors can operate sort of in, in anonymity, but then also the proliferation of cryptocurrency. So now they can you know, ask us to transfer as victims seemingly endless amounts of capital uh, across international borders with virtually no oversight. And so that that really is what lit the flame under it over the last few years. The pandemic picked it up even further where people were doing remote work. That remote access wasn't properly secured. I think where it's impacting things like CMMC and the federal government is one, the threat actors are penetrating actual government networks, not necessarily the federal government, but they have on occasion, but more often municipalities, et cetera. But they were also penetrating a lot of the suppliers to the government, whether they're secondary or tertiary suppliers. And I think that is causing some risk for the federal government. Yeah, that's a definitely a big takeaway that we frequently hear and are talking about more and more with folks across the federal space is it is kind of this notion of if you want to do business with the federal government, you need to kind of have your cyber house in order. And I know your company has a whole host of different ways that you partner and work with companies. Because so at a baseline, what do you see as some of the low hanging fruit that kind of makes individuals, organizations, et cetera, more vulnerable than others, maybe? 
to oversimplify just just in the sake of you know time i think that most of the threat actors are opportunistic in nature and most of the success of those cyber attacks are a result of sort of poor cyber hygiene on the part of the victim and that manifests itself in a lot of different ways but most of the cyber attacks that are successful against let's say mid-market businesses and a lot of the suppliers that we talked about are because the threat actor, as we call them, has access to stuff they shouldn't have access to. And that might be corporate data, credentials, encryption keys, information like proprietary documents, things like that. And, and so one of the things that you know companies should be doing is monitoring for that to make sure they understand where that data is surfacing. It, it, are there people on the dark web trading that data? Are there employees posting data to an open GitHub repo and not closing that and it has their Amazon keys in it? Those kinds of things are happening pretty frequently, completely avoidable, but you should monitor for that. And then when the threat actors do get access to those things and, and specifically ransomware actors, they tend to break into the network using some of that information and then they take as much information out of that network as they can before they actually execute the ransomware. And this is where a lot of the risk for suppliers come in, is they're taking confidential documents, they're taking plans for equipment that are being manufactured on behalf of the government, they're taking building plans, maps, things like that are all being transferred overseas to some Russian threat actor's home server, right? So that's a real risk. Yeah, and I think at this point, we can get pretty jaded about a lot of these topics. So just speaking to security clearance and security, part of the OPM data breach, you know, I got my letter, everybody got their letter. I think there was news out earlier this week that there was another kind of data breach involving SOCOM and some of their data being compromised. Doesn't necessarily tie into the conversation with ransomware, but I like to throw everything together in a basket and see what see what comes out. Do we kind of tend to just assume that our data is compromised at all times? And is that a part of the problem, like getting past just kind of this inertia around like breaches are going to happen? What can we do about it? Pretend I just asked a coherent question, Curtis. That was beautiful. So yes, I think that it's it's safe to assume that our personal information is out there. You know, you I was not in the OPM breach, but I've been in many others. And just like, you know, everybody else, I've gotten my free credit monitoring as a result. That is quite a consolation prize, right? (laughs) Thank you for that. But I think from an organizational standpoint, understanding that every time any of that data is available to threat actors, they can be used in campaigns, phishing campaigns, social engineering campaigns, and sometimes the actual credentials are leaked so they can just log into systems. So as an organization, you know, ransomware is not a typical cyber attack where, you know, 10 years ago, a cyber attack was really annoying. Somebody broke in, they took something, it was embarrassing. Maybe you had to pay a fine if you were regulated, but it was annoying. It was, uh, ransomware is a complete operational interruption, right? It's it, your business stops working. <laughs> so you have to look at the fact that this data is out there, not with apathy and say like, well, everybody has it. You have to look at it. What can I do from an organizational perspective to one, understand what my digital risk is, what information is out there that pertains to my organization? And two, what can I do to mitigate that or make it harder for the threat actors to leverage that data to get inside my systems? Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is I think this conversation around ransomware, it's just, it's very interesting, all of the nuance behind it, because I was having a conversation on a panel with someone from another country, and they were talking about ransomware stats and specifically highlighting how their company had paid out less in ransomware ransoms in in the course of their cyber breaches and touted that as kind of a sign uh, as a good sign. Now, I thought it was interesting about the panel that I heard you on and some other folks talking about, and a lot of times companies don't necessarily have 
have a choice when it comes to that. So maybe can you could even talk about that process. Like what does proactivity around ransomware attacks look like? I know you do a ton of that with your company. And is it necessarily, quote unquote, good or bad sometimes for these companies to be paying those ransoms? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the the most efficient and cost effective way to handle ransomware is to not get it, <laughs> and so the, the the prevention component is is key, and and so those investments would include things like the monitoring that I talked about, but also just general good cyber hygiene, good password and credential policy, two factor authentication, etc., just to avoid being that low hanging fruit, since most of those attacks are opportunistic in nature, but having a plan for when and if it does occur, what to do. So that's an incident response plan that has ransomware specific components to it because it is different than a typical cyber attack with the operational interruption components, but then also having a plan for restoring. Now, you're right, many companies get into a position where, like I said at the beginning of the interview, the threat actors will actually gain access and they won't execute the ransomware right away. They will sit inside the network. They will learn everything they can about what the systems are and how you communicate with the systems. And and, they, and as part of that, they will learn how you do your backups and they will, to the best of their ability, disrupt that too. And so many companies end up in a position where they are either going to have to pay the threat actors something or they're going to go out of business. And so there's a whole process around ransomware response that includes things like business impact assessment and determining whether you can, from a from an OFAC compliance or a Treasury Department compliance perspective, pay a ransom. And then if you should, you know, how much does it cost to restore? And, you know, can you afford that? Or should you start negotiating with these threat actors to determine a smaller number? It is nuanced and it's it's complicated and it's really not a fair fight. Yeah, and I think it's definitely interesting to see how, you know, as you mentioned, the proactivity piece of it is big. So for a company's perspective, do you think most companies, especially those working with the federal government, since we're on federal news radio here, realize what they have to protect? Or maybe what are some of those, you know, missed opportunities when it comes to being prepared for ransomware or any other kind of cyber attack that might come their way? Yeah, I'm sympathetic to the victims, even the ones that haven't checked all of the proactivity boxes, because technology is fairly complex. And when you're talking about very large organizations, we use the term attack surface in our industry. Their attack surface is quite large. They have lots of systems to secure. So the likelihood that they're going to button down and and, and secure every single one of those perfectly, it's pretty low, that's going to be hard for them to do. So that is hard to defend against. And that's where you have to have that sort of complex response plan. For the companies that are smaller, I don't think that they're ready. I don't think that they're doing all of the right things just because I'm witnessing it in my day-to-day work, the same mistakes being made over and over and over again. And so part of it is just education and making sure they understand like, look, there are a handful of things that every company should be doing here. And if you do those things, it reduces your risk significantly. Yeah, and you touched on the education, the apathy piece. I think that's so big. So when you're talking to companies, who are the major muscle movements when it comes to understanding this risk? We talk to a ton of security professionals. Obviously, anytime you're talking cyber, it hits so many different sectors, right? You have you need management involved, you need security involved. What are some of those key stakeholders that like if you're having a conversation with a company around this, you're like, hey, you, you these are the minds that need to be on sitting at the table and talking about solutions and, and figuring this out. Is there one belly button that making it all happen or, or who's involved? 
for large organizations, it should be a board level discussion. And we do a lot of board briefings for companies to explain like, look, this is what's happening. This is what happened to your peer, right? So we can tell a real life anecdote. We don't have to name names, but we can tell them, look, these people thought they had this button down and this is what happened. So here's some things you guys need to think about from a budget perspective and sort of taking that ball and running with it is typically the chief information security officer, or sometimes it's the chief risk officer, depending on the organization. When you get down to smaller organizations, it's it's usually the founding team or the president of the company. And the problems we run into when having these discussions with them, and we typically have it in a, in a, in a larger forum, like at a chamber of commerce meeting in a, in a city, we'll, we'll sit all of these companies down and say, here are the things that you need to be doing. And I always get asked the question, they're not coming after me, right? I don't have to worry about this. And the thing is, is no, you're right. They're not coming after you specifically, but they are opportunistic in nature and you are absolutely a candidate for this. And, and a lot of companies don't make changes because they think that they're not going to get hit. And the fact is, is thousands a day are being hit. When it comes to nation state actors or even individuals who are trying to profit from ransomware, I mean, they are going after everyone. And there is a reason like the major financial institutions actually have security personnel often that are working for them, like cleared personnel is because there's kind of an intersection with all of this stuff going on when it comes to the national security threats and the ones that are attacking commercial sector. Do you see that information sharing when it comes to the kind of risks that companies are facing and that the federal government is facing? It's getting better, but there's a lot of room for improvement. I do think CISA is doing the best they can. They're spread very thin too. Their mandate is is huge. In the commercial sector, there's this concept of ISACs. That's an information sharing organization that's usually vertical focused. There's a financial ISAC, there's a healthcare ISAC, there's a retail ISAC, and they, they are sharing information. Now, the challenge really is, and, and it does get down to personnel, is the large financials can afford to hire those people. But once you start getting below the fortune, let's say 2000, the available talent pool of, of secu- computer security or information security professionals starts to dwindle quickly. And there's sort of a supply and demand, right? So the, the salaries on the top end are very high. And anybody who's any good is going to go command those salaries at the larger companies. And that leaves less and less talent for everyone else. And I think that is a big challenge. You're hitting on one of our bread and butter topics there, Curtis, when you talk about like the supply demand with the workforce. So we do have that. So yeah, maybe speak to that. This cybersecurity workforce shortage, how does that play into this? Is there a solution to that? I mean, what do those companies do who just quite frankly cannot find enough or adequate personnel to fill those key cybersecurity roles that they have? Well, it's going to vary from industry to industry. And also, you know, when you start talking about regulated industries, it gets a little bit nuanced. But the future of cybersecurity programs is as a service. It's a utility, right? So, you know, there's no reason the local candy manufacturer should try to run their own security programs, right? That's not their core competency. They make toffee. Let's outsource that to a company that can hire the talent, has an economies of scale like a managed security provider. And I think that is the case for the broader industry. It's, it's as a service because of this talent shortage. I will also say that there's a lot of effort being made at the university level to accelerate programs and get people out. But these are people just entering the, the industry. They don't have the hands-on experience of the folks at the top of the stack like we were talking about earlier. So th- it's going to take time for that to fix itself. And it absolutely is part of the problem. So, you know, for example, I do a lot of pro bono talks, like I mentioned at Chambers of Commerce, stuff like that. And I can tell these companies exactly what they need to do. And some of those things aren't terribly complex and they don't involve 
buying products. They're just some process-oriented things or policy-oriented things. And many of those companies don't do those things because they don't understand it well enough. And so that's part of the problem is, is the talent gap. Why is this interest in ransomware specifically kind of hitting a lot of companies now and becoming this news update? You know, if you'd asked me that question a year or two ago, I think you probably wouldn't even even asked it because companies didn't think that this was something that was going to happen to them. But now, you know, especially in the larger sort of upper mid-market and, and large enterprise space, the number of companies that don't know another company that is a peer of theirs or in their space that hasn't been hit is is basically not a thing. They, they've all know someone who has, so it's becoming very real for them that this could actually occur. So they're starting to take it seriously. And you mentioned Bleeping Computer. I mean, they do report a lot of stuff and they've actually been the channel for a lot of the threat actors to announce who they've been hitting. So the, the actual ransomware actors will call up Bleeping Computer and tell them what they're doing so that they scare, so they scare everybody into paying the ransom so they don't dump their data, et cetera. So the media plays a kind of a dual role here. When they do amplify these attacks, sometimes they, they put some additional leverage into the threat actors' hands. Oh man, Kurt, it's like WikiLeaks in the IC. It's like you have yes. like a... You have like a for me, it's a hate-hate relationship, but maybe for some folks, it's a, it's a love-hate relationship. Is there anything I did not ask about that you wanted to touch on or that we should highlight? You know, I think we want to just reinforce the importance of basic cyber hygiene. And I mentioned some of those things and that password and credential policy. And what I mean by credential policy, I should specify, that is don't use your organizational email to sign up for anything unrelated to the organization. <laughs> because if you use it to sign up for some hobbyist website or something like that, that hobbyist website does not have the security controls that your organization does, right? They're, they're, they're probably not caring as much about it as your organization. That will get hacked and that credential will end up in a breach. Threat actors will use that against the organization. And Password reuse is a major issue. Not having two-factor authentication is a major issue. Of course, we all need to stop clicking on things. I know these phishing campaigns are getting smarter and smarter, but we should also be getting smarter about what not to click on. <laughs> At this point, we should, you'd think we, we'd learned our lessons, but we're still clicking and that's an issue. And then of course, just basic you know, cyber hygiene from a systems perspective, having endpoint detection and response, managed detection and response in place for when the attack occurs, having an, a containment and response plan. Is, is just critical. Yeah. Well, this topic is not one that's going away. I know that we're talking a lot more about CMMC and those compliance issues across the defense industrial base. So I'm sure this is something that we'll keep hitting on over at clearancejobs.com. And I appreciate your time, Curtis, to chat with us more today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about guilt by association for security clearance holders and specifically what to do about that shady family member or friend who you might not like to report on your SF-86. I think, you know, some people might chuckle at this topic. You know, hopefully most clearance holders don't have shady associates, but we can't help who we're related to. And I know that for some folks, that's a problem. Is this a topic that you see come up frequently? Oh, I mean, who doesn't have shady family members? <laughs> You've never met my cousin Frank before. <laughs> so this comes up and this actually, the way I see it come up with security clearance cases, and I'd be curious to get your feedback on that. I have seen specific cases where someone did not list a relative who was required to be listed on the form, 
because that individual had a criminal record or some other issue, and then they lost their security clearance because again, this one case, this guy repeatedly denied that this dude was his brother. I mean, who hasn't tried to deny their brother's existence at some point? But he just went to the mattresses like, no, I don't have a brother. This guy's not my brother related to me because he was in prison. Obviously, he lost his security clearance for lying on the form. I actually, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs, but I can't speculate, but I doubt he would have lost his security clearance if he had simply listed, hey, my brother is in prison. This is why I haven't had contact with my brother in, you know, X, Y, Z months, or I'm not, you know, associated with his criminal activity. Again, like you mentioned, using the additional comment section on the form is a great idea. But where I've seen it is where folks who are nervous or, or worried about their relatives don't list them and then that comes back to bite them. Yes. The irony in this is precisely what you alluded to, which is in most cases, had the individual listed the relative on the SF-86, if they were required to do so, it wouldn't have been a problem. Now, obviously, you know, you have some discretion about who you list as, for example, people who know you well and things like that. So I certainly wouldn't list somebody who is, you know, incarcerated or who has a lengthy criminal history as a reference when you can avoid doing so. Now, probably shouldn't also be associating with those type of folks if you want to get or keep the clearance, but that's a whole other ball of wax. The issue here really is the issue of candor. It's not so much in most cases, the association, because as you pointed out, the reality is most of the time this comes up, it is, you know, an estranged relative. And somebody says, you know, my dad, who I haven't spoken to in 20 years is in prison, or my brother, you know, has this lengthy criminal history. And yeah, he's my brother, I can't disown him. But, you know, I I keep him at an arm's length and I have nothing to do with anything that he's involved in. I mean, most of the time that's going to be sufficient because, you know, we don't get held to account for something that another adult does that we have no control over. That's kind of the reality of life in a democratic society. So why does the government care about relatives on the form? I think it comes down to that kind of association, bond of affection, blackmail issue. So maybe can you speak to that? Like if you know you have some relatives that you're going to have to list that you're like, oh man, I don't, or you've written about this before too, like references or folks that the government might talk to who might actually lie or say things that you're not eager for them to say, is there a way that candidates can kind of get ahead of that or information that they should provide on the form if they have some kind of scandalous relatives out there? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. At the end of the day, I mean, the the exception to the rule is, you know, if you are somehow involved in what these people are doing, I mean, obviously, if that's the case, then I would say probably don't waste your time applying for the clearance. But the government doesn't know that until you tell them. They are going to sort of assume that, you know, there is some affiliation there if the person's actively involved in criminal activity or you're benefiting from it somehow. Or more commonly, you are, by associating with them, opening yourself up to situations where, you know, you could be either exploited somehow or put in a situation where you're, you know, surrounded by a criminal element or drugs or, you know, something else that the government doesn't like. So they don't like the the idea that you could be exposed to that as a clearance holder and, you know, potentially tempted to engage in illegal activity. So as long as you can affirmatively and credibly disclaim that and say, no, you know, 
I don't have any contact with this relative or this person who used to be a friend many years ago is not in my life anymore. Whatever the situation is, as long as you can demonstrate that sort of bond is not continuing and is something that you have either worked to minimize or cut off entirely, therefore, you know, eliminating the potential for these type of situations, that's most of the time going to cut it. Now, there are kind of some exceptions to the rule, though, that we need to talk about. And that's where this gets a little tricky for people. And and that is there are a handful of agencies, predominantly law enforcement agencies, that have specific kind of suitability criteria where they say, you know what, because of your relationship with this person, we don't think that, you know, you're a good fit for our agency because we think that there's too much of a risk that, you know, this person is going to pressure you to abuse your position to benefit them. For example, if you are somebody who has a relative or a spouse who doesn't have legal status in the United States, that is something that comes up actually with surprising frequency. People who are applying to DHS components that deal with immigration issues, ICE, CBP, USCIS, that usually doesn't fly. And they just say, you know, thank you for your application, but we're sorry, we're not going to be able to move forward with this process. Similarly, if you have a relative with an extensive history of drug-related crimes and you want to go work for the DEA, that might be a problem. Um, I have seen it also come up in cases where somebody wants to be a prosecutor or some other kind of law enforcement-related position and they've got a close relative who's you know, on trial or serving time or something like that. And, and that's generally a problem as well. But outside of those kind of very specific scenarios... Most of the time, it is precisely as we discussed earlier, which is a non-issue as long as you are fully forthcoming about it and as long as you are very clear that you know you recognize the issue and you are doing whatever needs to be done to kind of keep that person from influencing you. So don't try to hide your shady relatives because the government will always find out. They generally do. I mean, I'm sure there are... I'm sure there are people who have have gotten away and and you know haven't been discovered with omitting folks. I always tell people like don't tempt fate on this one. The penalties are pretty severe if you get caught falsifying stuff. You know, it, it, you got to ask yourself is this job really worth the risk of being prosecuted? And hopefully for everybody the answer to that is no. And share what you know and you don't need to share what you don't know too. It's it, I feel like it's similar with relatives it is with foreign contacts too because I've had that come up people have messy family situations, right? So you might have half siblings or relatives that you're not not in contact with or don't know about. So I feel like indicating what you know on the form without feeling a need to chase down what you don't know or what is going to put you at more risk to try to verify is good advice when it comes to relatives as well, in my experience. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, that, that brings up another point as well. We've talked in the past about, you know, speculation on the form and how so many applicants really dig themselves a hole by needlessly speculating about things that, you know, they have no way of proving or disproving. But as soon as they put it out there, now the onus is on them and the government's kind of saying, well, you know, you you made this assumption based on something. So most of the time, speculation is a terrible idea. You are, as you said, generally just obligated to report what you know. So we see cases where, you know, somebody has an estranged relative they haven't spoken with in years, they don't know their address, they don't know you know, some other data point, date of birth, whatever. 
the government's not expecting you to go chase down that relative that you're estranged from and haven't spoken to in decades. You just put unknown and then you use the comment section to explain the situation and, you know, that that's really the only information you have. You've, you've given them what they have. And, and generally that is going to be sufficient, absent, you know, really unusual circumstances. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.